Is it on? Okay, great, thanks. There's an old um, Chinese poem that was uh, a book was written by Jeremy Seaton called The Wine of Endless Life many years ago. And there um, are some very obscure poems in the, the book. And one of them is, anon- is anonymous. The flower has gone sour. The grain in the bin has gone stale. My ladle is busted. And even my old begging bowl has a hair lip. No salt, just a couple of onions. Contented heart is my portion. It's sweeter than all the sweetmeats in the world. Doing this practice at Hollyhock compared to his life, it's inconceivable, right? He, so many people that we have received these teachings from going back so far or all, so many seekers live such hard lives. Just, it's, it's so amazing that we receive so much here as we're seeking. But look what he understood. And what's so relevant for us today in a world that so much has become about greed and materialism and so harmful. It's so beautiful. The flower has gone sour, his ladle's busted, his begging bowl has a hair lip, no salt, just a couple of onions. Just picture it. Would you be that content? Contented heart is my portion. Ah, no matter what's happening, contented heart is my portion. This is the fourth heavenly messenger someone more peaceful than peace itself. And they're such, um, they're like lighthouses for us, right? They're like beacons for us in how to navigate. So we've, we've been um, talking about in so many ways how Vipassana develops in the direction of more and more impartiality. Yeah, that that it will cultivate that seventh factor of enlightenment, unconditional acceptance, unconditional peace with how things are. And that, that impartiality results in, in inclusivity. So that as we get to be, have this unconditional acceptance with some things, maybe it's fear or um, 
a sound that's been bothering you, right? There, there's usually some, some physical pain that's bothering us. There, when there is that unconditional peace, we start to learn that, oh, that flexibility, that ability to be with something else that we couldn't before. And that's such an achievement. And we can apply that to something else that we're having trouble with, including <clears throat> as worthy of our attention. So being with the nature of how things are, you know, what, um, it's just this vast learning, vast exploration within this birth into seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And touching, boy, you know, just seeing is so much to be mindful of, but touching is the whole fathom-long body. It's um, vast. And then the mind, the knowing seeing, knowing smelling, knowing tasting, (laughs) etc. The knowing, the citta, the consciousness, knowing, but knowing metta, knowing compassion, knowing anger, you know, the, the mind colored with mind states, spiritual emotions. So sometimes I, I think of um, if we just see our skin or close our eyes and, and we don't imagine the visual image, but just what, what, what a dear old friend our body is and how ancient, but every moment it's new. You know, so, so it's that sense of that, the dear old friend, well, the, the deer or the ducks, are, you know, something here that makes you, really when they touch your heart, you're so happy. They're old friends, but always new friends, ancient, new, is there's that paradox. And that our eyes are like that, but boredom, boredom is like that, an old friend. Sleepiness, old friend, just anything that appears is an old friend, new friend. And the question really always comes to whether it's a raven or sound of a raven or anger, loneliness, why are we not more interested? You know, that's the big question. Wow. It's staggering how... That is, that's part of the nature of how things are. And as I started to access more metta, for example, I started to see very clearly for all of us that if we come back from being lost in thinking to, the, to what is happening and um, we're not kind, what would be the incentive to come back? You know, if we're not kind, what, you know, why would we want to be here? It's hard enough being with how things are. But to add the kind of, the whip, right? The, un, the just the whip, the, the judgment and of others and ourselves on top of it. Well, of course, that's so tiring. That, of course, we're, we're not wanting to be here as much 
and be genuinely interested. We shut down. So even, even the question, what is body, what is mind, what is emotion, without any concept, right? The, the, the interest, the, the investigation, the pure exploration. Emotion is a, a kind of silent language in a way. It's its own language. There'll be all the thoughts about it, but that's not the whole emotion. And we come to see as we practice that if we're not accepting something, we can't be interested in it, right? There's no way. So if there's a resistance, maybe we could get interested in that. (laughs) But do we? And I think that over, again, years of practice, you start to see that a lot of the practice is experiencing the difference between being connected with what is real, right? That we really have the genuine connection, the sustaining, the mindfulness, the... the, um, all the factors, at least some of them operating, we're able to connect with what is real. And we, <clears throat> we start to see the difference between that and being consumed by our defenses. And it, it's like, it's, it's the willingness to feel that, the disappointment in the defenses and the disappointment sometimes in what is real. The defenses don't work very well. And when we're consumed, we're just caught in, you know, that proliferation of papancha, it's called. It's just like this endless stream of thought that if you check into your body, <laughs> there's nothing to do with what's happening other than just trying to, you know, keep us from being interested with what's real. Because we will go, no, I'm not angry. That didn't bother me. I'm not afraid of that. You know, it's just like a little kid, right? I, I, I can accept that. I'm accepting that. You know, if you listen to it, that part, that's more real. But the part that's just going on and on and on, you know, in whatever thing, it's like when you come out of it and you look back, it's like often it's humiliating. I mean, sometimes I look at my thought stream and I do have a judgment. I'll note, oh, that's pathetic, right? And then I'll see. It's like it seems so pathetic. And then I'm like, well, that seems a bit like a judgment. <laughs> That sounds a little aversive, but boy, you know, all right already. It's like how many times can you plan something, right? 
It's just unbelievable how much you can plan. And, it, and you can go to yourself, okay, we made the plan. <laughs> okay, right? And it's like, it starts again. You know, it's just like, wow, you know, consumed by the defense, right? And if you look underneath it, it, most of what we're looking at underneath it is what? Uncontrollability. Anatta. We so want to control. And if you look at planning, so much of it is trying to get the best deal. Less pain, right? <laughs> so this... this this is meant to be revelatory, inspiring. There's a, um, a woman named Marie-Louise von Franz who was a great um, student, client, disciple, and I think great, greatest interpreter of Carl Jung. <coughs> and she said... Um, that after she would work with people for 10 to 15 years with their dreams, that their dreams would get more difficult and complicated and hard to understand. You would think it would be the opposite, but it would get more difficult, much more complex. And old, like old friends of hers or old clients, when she was old, old, would come to her begging her, to help them with these kind of dreams. And she would say no. And one time in an interview, somebody asked her why she got like that. And she said, because when you first, her for for her, the first 10 to 15 years are the beginning, right? And it's like, she said, it's like, it's kind of like finding treasures. The dreams are like treasures in the unconscious. And uh, she said after that, a certain point, the unconscious is like a mother that says, get out. Time to, time to grow up, right? And uh, <laughs> they get, so they get difficult because she said the direction needs to be, it's so beautiful, once you do that work, you're supposed to just shift to just being. Just being. Beautiful, huh? Time to really let go of the interpretation, right? The need for that. It's like time to just shift. And you'll see it in yourself after a lot of practice. If a dream happens, you won't tend to get caught in it. You'll just get the feeling tone or the feeling and get the message pretty quickly. And it won't require so much um, analysis. It will require kind of embodying and, and accepting that the message is usually very apparent. And our practice is similar because, you know, you know how much we initially will just, if we're interested in this, if you love the practice, you'll really try to figure things out, 
right? It'll be that, it's like the near enemy of insight. You know, you just, I would find myself always like out walking and it'd be like caught in figuring it out, figuring it out, figuring it out. And then I used to, at some point, if it was strong, I'd I'd look at the watch and I'd say, okay, five minutes, (laughs) you're allowed five minutes. And then, you know, 25 minutes would go by and I'd still be like working it, right? Working it, working it, working it. after some years you sign it, it's like Marie-Louise von Franz, you get, you get, you kind of catch your, you know, your act. It's so seductive. But you're not there. You get, it gets um, easy to let go of when you see it. There's a, a Japanese a Buddhist Roshi named Sun Roshi who lived from 1907 to 1984. And he said, all beings are flowers blossoming in the universe. And just, just listen to how inclusive this next, next part is. So inclusive, so reverent. There are so many pleasures in life. Cooking, eating, sleeping, every deed of everyday life is nothing else but this great matter. Realize this. So we extend tender care with a worshiping heart, even to such thing as beasts and birds, but to insects too, okay? Even to grass, to one blade of grass, even to dust, to one speck of dust. Sometimes I bow to the dust. When I pick up one particle of dust, all nations are united. And as some of you have heard me before um, just be so reverent to um, such a wealth of heritage, um, old heritage here in uh, British Columbia. And this is a, a, just a description of the man, John Swanton, who came to Haida Gwaii to um, he was sent by Franz Boas, an anthropologist at Harvard, to do certain work, but he dropped all the instruction he was given of what he was supposed to do, and he just tried to um, learn as many stories as he could. So the description by... Um, Robert Brinkhurst of this man, John Swanton, was in October 1900, wholly unprepared, wholly unprepared, yet perfectly equipped, stepped into a world in which dogfish, geese, and killer whales are bearers of the heart's truth. I don't, I think that's so incredibly beautiful to think of these beings that are bearers of the heart's truth, as a um, 
heritage, that that understanding is a heritage that is here. They're bearers of the heart's truth as well as potent agents of creation, guides and escorts through the maze of space and time. Helping us navigate, right? Old friends. So I wanted just to read (laughs) it's a kind of part story, part poem. There's a um, great storyteller. I think he thought Robert Brinkhurst thought he was the most more powerful than Homer. That that's how incredible this heritage is. You know, his name is Sky. Sky is speaking of an old man, white as a gull, who lives on the floor of the sea. And in, in this in this tradition. The, the God isn't up in heaven, he's at the bottom of the sea. Just, just think of that, how different that would be in the heritage. Sleek blue beings, which turn out to be ravens, are perching on the screens in the back of the house down there. And the old, when the raven comes to visit, this old man says, You are me, and you are that too. So this is um, basically how Raven came to be. Loon, we all know loons, right? And their sound, very important in the story. Loon was living in Voice Handler's house. She left the house at daybreak and repeatedly she called. Then she flew back in and sat back down where she usually sat. The old man lay there, not looking up at her. She left again, and then she called repeatedly, and then she came back down in and sat back down. When she kept saying the same thing, the one who was lying by the fire said, Tell me, why do you keep talking? Well, sir, I'm, just, I'm not just talking to my own ears. The spirit beings tell me that they have no place to live. That's the reason I keep talking. Then he said to her, I'll make some. And that's how the world was created. Very different, yeah? It's, it's so beautiful. Very inclusive. Next thing you know, according to Sky, the storyteller, some kind of light, a mirage, a reflection appears in the sky. The raven flies in that direction, passes through the clouds, and steals the skin of a newborn child. (laughs) That's how it happened. (laughs) How do we navigate through this maze? of time and space. Never mind, find something deeper than life and death. Very important, are we seeking something deeper than life and death? 
an old student friend um, coming to these retreats uh, told me last year that he was uh, raised in Winnipeg and there were some incredibly massive snowstorms there as a kid and um, he used to go to school with his older sister on a pony and he was the youngest so he would be in front and she'd be in behind holding the reins of the pony and they were coming back from school one day and this massive snowstorm blizzard hit and they got lost and uh, they couldn't go on and they were really afraid right you know and his sister dropped the reins and the pony found the way home That's like a great metaphor for practice. Your, your body's the pony, right? You're the pony. And how beautiful, right? Just that instinctive trust, as Steve is always saying. You know, there's this inner intelligence, spiritual intelligence that does know. My mom had had one of those classic, really, really hard lives. And I don't remember any conversations that she ever had with me, except when she was drunk, which she was drunk most of the time. (laughs) And um, the only conversation was that she wanted to die. And when I was born, I was born dead, and my mom died. We both died when I was born. And strange, the karma is so strange because that was her happiest moment or moments was when she died at my birth. So when she was really drunk, she'd tell me how wonderful it was. And she saw angels and she heard the like sacred sounds and It was so important for her. It was all she wanted. And um, she did manage to drink herself to death and I was very, still very young. And uh, there was a, um, no one mentioned it. No one, you know, my family, you didn't talk about it. (laughs) It's so amazing, isn't it? Like to have your mother die and you're not allowed to talk about it. It's like very strange. Um, And, but we did go to some some wake, you know, it was kind of like we got in the car, went to a wake, an Irish wake, open casket. And um, no one mentioned that that was going to happen either. So kind of people were mingling in one room and the other, other room was where my mom was in the casket. And I wandered. I don't like gatherings particularly any time, but at that time I was, I had so much grief and didn't understand it. So I went wandering in and I saw my mom all dolled up, you know, like just makeup. And I was so, it, it was like a Stephen King horror show, right? It was so odd. And um, eventually I kind of dared, I, I wanted to touch her. And so, um, 
I didn't understand what would happen, but I touched her and she was so cold. And it was just like, you know, one of the most profound, important moments of my life because I, in that moment of like, it was like bigger than the electric shock that could be possible, I understood that that was going to happen to me and it would, be ha- it would happen to everyone I know. It was really strong. And, you know, when Steve tells the story last night of the four heavenly messengers, it, it's always moving to me because that's what happened with the Buddha when he saw the dead body. It's like he asked the driver, you know, what is this? And then death, and like, is this going to happen to me? Uh-huh. <laughs> is this going to happen to everyone? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's meant to be a heavenly messenger. It's meant to be a protection. Certainly for me, it totally transformed me into a very um, inquiring being, really seeking, determined to find something deeper than life and death. Nothing really mattered to me other than that. That search for understanding. This is from Sayada Upandita. One should reflect on the fact that the whole world of beings is made up of nothing but mind and matter, which have arisen, but do not stay. Mind and matter do not remain still for one single moment. They are in constant flux. Once we find ourselves in the body and mind, in this body and mind, there is nothing we can do to prevent growth from taking place. When we are young, we like to grow. But when we are old, we are stuck in an irreversible process of decline. Nature cannot be deceived. We cannot escape old age and death. This is the main weakness of beings. Beings are devoid of security. There is no safe refuge from old age, disease, and death. Look at other beings. Look at animals. And most of all, look at yourself. There is no security. Perhaps reflecting on the precariousness of life will cause some urgency to arise in you and give you a strong impulse to practice. Vipassana meditation can lead to a place beyond these fearsome things. Pretty straightforward. And, it, you know, Steve's talk, it was so beautiful as he went from those four heavenly messengers to just that deeper and deeper faith, right? From the, the blind faith to the verified faith. And Vipassana is this willingness to explore very deeply anicca, 
that all existence that we share with every, every being that takes birth, we share being born in a world of, of that moment-to-moment change. That it doesn't stay the same for a moment and there's no security. And then we start looking closely to see things beginning, middle, ending. Sometimes we see just beginnings, sometimes just middle, sometimes we see just endings. So we learn to rather think of everything as separate. We start to see the body really truly as earth, air, fire, and water. It's like we're borrowing earth, we're borrowing air, we're borrowing water, we're borrowing fire that's constantly changing. And we, we don't really investigate well enough. Eating can lead to full liberation. Look at it. It's like when you put something in your mouth, it comes out. <laughs> what is that, right? Like it really getting, we are made up of food and water. We borrow water. It comes out. We're made up so much of water. And we wonder again, like, why aren't we more interested? Well, maybe because we're so dependent on water. There is a book Stephen and I found many years ago called Cinderella and Her Sisters by Barry and Anne Ulanov uh, that talked a lot about how to work with jealousy and envy. And they said in this book so beautifully, gratitude is dependency acknowledged. the more you, you see, again, on Vipassana retreat, you'll start to see just, just how dependent we are on, on food and water and shelter and how much we take it for granted. You know, if you really take it in, there would be more contentment. If you receive it, So death is often, the awareness of death is often put in as a um, protector in many ways in the Buddhist teachings, the awareness of it. The happy Sayadaw, Myatang Sayadaw, um, I think one time he said to me that, I don't know if where he was in his 90s, because <laughs> he died at 98, that he said to me he'd been doing this one practice for 10 years, just on the in-breath. I say to you know, you say to yourself, um, I will die, I'm going to die. And on the out-breath, and everyone I know will die. Very simple. For 10 years. And then, of course, you've heard, some of you have heard it, but then he, there's this long pause... And he said, and you know what? And you know, you, you can't help but say, what? You know, it's so infectious. And he said, when I die, I'm not going to be surprised. <laughs> it's so infectious. You know? Ha, 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 ha. 
And it's so true. Somehow we think we're going to squeak out of it, you know? It just can't possibly, that last breath, how could it possibly happen, right? Oh, it will. (laughs) There's an old Chinese proverb that says, um, even the withered branch brings prosperity to the mountain. As I'm getting older, I, I like that more and more. <laughs> you know, but, you know, again, nature is such an incredible teaching. You see a tree that's fallen, or even standing with the woodpeckers, you know, with it, they're just eating the bugs in it. But it's like the tree has given so much life. It's just new life. And this is our body. It's like, it's just um, recycling. It's, it's a constantly changing process of earth, air, fire, and water. And then the mind, it's the same. It's constantly changing process of thought that have space in between. We just aren't so interested in the space between. Or the emotion, same. It's like just, just uh, so important to see any kind of loneliness, like is to remember when it ends or joy, or sadness, or compassion. It's so important to see equanimity, peace, to get that it's impermanent. And Sri Nisargadatta, he begs us not to accuse him of being born and begs us not to accuse him of dying. He so gets that his body isn't his. How could you possibly accuse me of me being born versus, you know, this transforming process of earth, air, fire came and went, not me. No birth, no death. And yet, You'll see somebody like Suzuki Roshi, who wrote Beginner's Mind, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and started um, such an incredible Zen scene in San Francisco and Tassajara. And he had so, you know, younger students. So he had that, our generation, we were young, the people who started learning from him. So when they were at his deathbed and he was so old, much older than him, they had so much idealism of how their teacher should die. And this is very important to see. It's like even when somebody's dying, we want them to die a certain way, right? Look at that. We can't even let somebody die the way they want to die. It's like unbelievable, you know? And so right before he died, he said, I don't want to die. And they were really angry at him. And that was just the truth. I would guess most of us would say that, right? The body doesn't want to die. I know my <laughs> when my dad died, it was like hours and hours and hours before his body started to um, relax. 
He didn't want to die. And that's okay, right? I mean, I think this is what's so amazing is this idea we have about how we should die. It's such a burden. You know, the great death. We don't want to, you know, maybe, maybe I'll be screaming and yelling at the nurse. Who knows, you know? It's just like, I really don't think you should worry about it too much, you know? We're just going to do it the way we do. The most important teaching is that anything can happen and that every moment is a birth and death. Every moment of consciousness, every moment, it's like there's a sight, a smell, a thought, a body sensation that they take birth and they die. And there's a great saying once I saw just, never again this moment. Never again this moment, right? It's just that powerful. That's how you practice to die. We can die any moment. This is from Michel de Montaigne, a philosopher, 1533 to 1572 in the Renaissance. He said, don't give death a second thought. If you don't know how to die, don't worry. Nature will show you. She'll do it beautifully. You know, we've, according to the Buddha, we've done it millions of times. We've been everything. Bugs, fish, devas, guardian angels in the hell realms, you know, that's the idea, is that, hmm. He said that we've cried with grief more than the tears could fill many oceans. And I know the way I was conditioned and born in 1951, it's like, well, animals don't have feelings and they don't really understand death. And I I have taken on three feral cats in spite of myself um, for about eight and a half years. And uh, late last summer, I got home from being away for a while, and I, I, in the middle of the night, I heard this loud scream, and I, I didn't know what it was. It, I, I knew it was a feral cat. I didn't think it was one of the ones I am so close to, um, but it turned out that a, um, another feral cat had died under the house, and um, I had to. It's just a little teeny crawl space I had to, You know how you don't want to go in these places? Like, you know, the former owners left all kinds of weird stuff under there. It's, you know, plus there's all these things. And, yet, you know, you just really scraping along on my stomach and uh, got the dead cat. And it took my 
the feral cats months to recover. Months. They were so upset. Just, they were so, so deeply disturbed by it. You know, and I I just, I've learned so much from, from them just in terms of like, what I don't even know I learned as a kid about animals, right? Don't worry, they don't have feelings. I remember I wouldn't even, you know how you had to dissect a frog? And I wouldn't do it. I'm like, you know, why can't, if we really have to do this, why can't one person dissect a frog and we'll all be there? And anybody who wants to go on to medical school, you know, we'll encourage them, right? But I don't want to have to do it, really. You know, it's just like, I was like that even as a kid. I just couldn't see the sense of all 35 of us dissecting a frog. You know, maybe... There were reasons for it I couldn't conceive it. You know, everybody could look inside the frog, you know. Anyway. (laughs) Hmm. So someone more peaceful than peace itself. In 19... um, I think it was 1978, the Dalai Lama came to this meditation center where I worked. Many amazing beings did. And every every one of these beings had different things I really learned from. And when the Dalai Lama came in the steps, he, instead of doing what he was supposed to do, he went around and he found every staff person and shook their hand and looked in their eyes and thanked them. for example. (laughs) When Ajahn Chah came, I had the, you know, I cooked for the Dalai Lama. No one wanted to cook for these beings because we were so busy cooking for yogis, but I just always thought, well, this is great, you know? And so Ajahn Chah, I would bring him food the two times he came in. Um, it was just lovely to watch him. He'd walk around when yogis were doing walking meditation and he'd, he'd kind of bother you, you know. He'd tap you on the shoulder and finally it would be like, he'd sneak up in you, he's like a little elf, and he'd say, are you still suffering? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like each person, you know, that was so cool, right? You know, it's like, And he would tease me so mercilessly. Like, I dreaded sometimes bringing him food because you have to stay there and be with him. And, uh, you know, just koans, endless koans that I would, you know, he would never let me answer them right. I'm not even sure there was a right answer, but I certainly never got one. It was, <laughs> and he'd laugh and laugh. <laughs> Deepama. I was paired up to teach with Deepama at a three-month retreat. Nobody else wanted to. You know, these were always the most amazing things. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll do it if no one else wants to. You know, Deepama was like, 
considered third stage of enlightenment, like Steve said, such a saint. And she had the metta so developed as well as the nibbana, the deep liberation. She was so fine, refined. And when I would do a morning of interviews and she would, uh, it was early winter, and I would look out the window where I was staying in the building of the meditation center, and I'd look across the street where she was staying, and she'd have just her little white sari on. And um, I was very new at this, but uh, Deepama would go outside in the snow with her little white sari, sari after lunch and do walking meditation. And I would look at her and I'd go, time for a nap. <laughs> I, I just like, whoa, this lady is something else, right? She'd be doing walking meditation and she actually would walk back and forth pretty fast. Um, and then, you know, I was of course always having to visit her and I would always go over after my nap and her daughter would have, who was also pretty attained being, uh, she'd have, she'd be watching soap operas and her son, Deepama's grandson was wild. And he'd be running around, kind of screaming, yelling. And Deepama would be meditating and go into these deep spaces. And it was so inspiring as a, as a woman, as a laywoman, to see a householder that um, she wanted to hit fourth stage. She was still practicing, and any of us would give anything for her mind. One time when I was driving her to Boston Airport, uh, I had heard that she, um, in her early practice, when her con- she was doing, you know, she was very concentrated, that she um, could go back to the time of the Buddha and listen to his sermons because um, she was there. Um, you know, and I'm driving along and I thought, well, no time like the present to check out how she does that, right? So I asked her, you know, how, how do you do that? You know, <laughs> like actually, how do you go back and listen to the Buddhist sermons? You know, you, it was just like, okay, so she was alive then, but still. And so um, she just said quietly, oh, Mind moment by mind moment, like through all the lives. She just went back mind moment by mind moment to the time of the Buddha through all her lives. And I was like, I almost skidded off the road, right? I'm like, oh, you know, okay. And so, and then she could see, I was like, hmm, you know. And she, and she even touched me. She said, don't worry, you don't have to do that. <laughs> I said, great. <laughs> and, that, and that's when I started making this joke that probably we were all there, all of us were there, and we were gambling out back. Like, we weren't, we weren't even listening, right? We just kind of, we can't go back and hear it because we didn't hear it. We were, <laughs> we're still working at, yeah. <laughs> someone more peaceful than peaceful itself, the contented, it's a contentment, deep contentment. 
And in this place of, there's a place, a deeper and insight practice called Sankara Upeka, but it's this Sankara or karmic formations, and Upeka is that unconditional peace. So there's an unconditional peace with your own Sankara formations, but everyone's, every being's. And so in this place, there's no contradiction and paradox. very important and you will taste it sometimes a sense that duality non-duality you respect them equally not attached to either one or effort effortlessness you respect them equally no no contradiction deep ordinary it gets really fun sleepy awake sick healthy frantic ease of well-being. You relate to them equally. No struggle fighting with what's happening. You don't, you don't idealize one or the other. Needing reassurance, fine, okay with what's happening, fine. Wanting more, longing, everything we need is already within us, contentment. Hating everything, hating everyone, Boundless meta. Can you can you equally be with both? Trying to get rid of something, genuine interest. See that's peace. You don't have to get rid of the the one you don't like because you don't need to. You see it so clearly. It's not yours. It's not mine. And so you include it because every moment is the truth, and that's the truth of what's happening. Peace. No more war with what's happening. And this is the greatest gift you can give to the world. The war is over. This is when you can genuinely help somebody if you're beyond that need for help. Of course we can help people, but this is that level of um, becoming that lighthouse. It's possible. This is what's Upandita, you know, his book, In This Very Life. This is not far away from us. You know, my, one of my first teachers, he said, the truth is closer to you than your blood and your bones. It's not far away. This peace is not far away. It's right there. We don't fabricate it. We don't make it happen. You can't. But it's always there. I'd like to end with um, a poem by Lipo. Old Chinese poet. He lived in the 700s in China. It's called On the Mountain, Question and Answer. You ask me why I live on this green mountain 
I smile, no answer. My heart is serene on flowing water. Peach blossoms quietly going far away. This is another sky, another earth, no likeness to the human world below. That's that deep contentment, my heart serene on flowing water, life just as it is. Let's sit for a moment. Time for walking in the. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash/donate.